Hi there, and welcome to another podcast from the 2021 Noosa meeting of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group. My name's Todd Fraser. Joining me today is Professor Carol Hodgson. Carol is Head of the Division of Clinical Trials and Cohort Studies at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University, and is no stranger to this podcast. She joins me again today to talk about her recent work on recovery from COVID. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Lovely to see you. Carol, we've heard a lot about long COVID as a complication of the uh, of, of COVID-19 and the pandemic. What does that collection of symptoms mean to patients? Great question. So I think that we're still learning a lot about long COVID. We've had some publications out from international studies, but the patients in Australia that have survived critical illness, and they're the ones that I'm following up, not just anybody who's had COVID, but the, the COVID patients who've been critically ill, um, are really describing some very specific symptoms which are similar to what we would expect from what we've heard um, on the news and, and probably from overseas, and that is sort of ongoing shortness of breath, weakness, uh, a few of them are describing the symptoms of loss of taste or loss of smell, a persistent cough, some chest pain, headaches, a loss of sensation sometimes, and even palpitations and some cardiac symptoms. And then there are some really unusual ones like hair loss, which have been reported. So, uh, you know, I think that there, there's been a little bit of um, rumour mongering about how terrible some of the symptoms can be. But with everything, there are some patients who are doing really well and there are some patients who haven't done so well. Uh, and I think what's important is to try and tease out the differences between those who are really surviving and, and getting over it quickly and getting back to work and, and those who have those, you know, persistent symptoms. Carol, tell us about the work that you're doing in this area. So, um, as you know, my background is as an um, ICU physiotherapist and the reason why I got interested in the research side of things is because I was very worried about the long-term outcomes of our critically ill survivors. So I think that what's interesting with COVID is that although people who have diabetes and heart disease and whatnot are more at risk, what we see with the patients coming in is that it's often a single organ failure to start with. It's really just the risk. Often, it's not always, but often it's just the respiratory system that's failed. And these patients need um, high doses of oxygen to maintain their saturations and they need mechanical ventilation to support their lungs. And then if they continue on beyond that point, they become critically ill where they probably develop multiple organ failure and they have a prolonged ICU length of stay. So it's almost like we've got a couple of groups of patients. We've got groups of patients who come into ICU. They just need a little bit of support, whether that's high-flow oxygen therapy or non-invasive ventilation or even mechanical ventilation, but short duration, and then they survive and they can get out. Some of them, of course, don't survive. And we know, you know, from our ICU cohort, that's, you know, around about 10% at the moment, maybe a little higher. And then we've got um, a cohort who go on to develop multiple organ failure and they're really compromised and they have a very prolonged ICU length of stay. And I think what's interesting when we look at the data is that it does appear that the patients who have developed COVID have a longer duration of mechanical ventilation than you would expect from a sort of a single organ failure, but they do appear to do well. So it's, you know, then the, the mortality rate is not as high as, for example, somebody with um, 
just respiratory failure because of um, other types of pneumonia or because of uh, sepsis, for example, you know, they really do have a better survival than that, um, although they might be in ICU for quite a long time and they might require mechanical ventilation for a prolonged period, which means that they are weak and, and that their recovery is slower. You are linking your study to a couple of registry trials, um, SPRINT-SARI and the Excel trial. Can you tell us about those linkages and how that influences your research? Yeah, sure. So I think that the we're very fortunate in Australia because um, our group with the leadership of Andrew Udy and Aidan Burrell um, developed a study called SPRINT-SARI and SPRINT-SARI was an observational study of everybody admitted to intensive care with COVID or suspected COVID. And that's collected fabulous data around um, demographic details and the care that's been required in the intensive care unit for these patients. And um, the the registry goes until hospital discharge. So we know, you know, whether these patients have survived hospital, we know where they've been discharged to, and we know everything about their sort of hospital stay in the meantime, which is, is a really rich data source. And it's been that 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 sprint sari data has been really unique for multiple reasons. I mean, lots of countries have used this type of registry data, but for us it has meant that we've really understood very quickly the age groups that are being admitted to intensive care with COVID, um, the risk factors for being admitted to intensive care with COVID, the types of therapies that have been required. And, for example, we've been able to watch as, um, as hydrocortisone was shown to be effective in the literature, we could immediately see the translation and the uptake of use of the hydrocortisone within the Australian intensive care units, which was lovely to see. You know, we literally went from about 30% of patients using it to 90% within a couple of days of that publication coming out. So that was wonderful. We've also been able to find out, for example, there was a publication in The Lancet where they said that hydroxychloroquine was being used in Australia, which we knew wasn't true from our SPRINT-SARI data, and we were actually able to have that publication retracted because we wrote letters saying, well, not me, but Andrew and Aidan and the SPRINT-SARI group wrote letters saying that we knew from our Australian data that that, that that was false data that was being published in The Lancet and, and you know, that led to a retraction and, a, you know, a really careful look at the type of data that was being published um, in these high-impact journals. So the Sprint SARI data, you know, is, is really this fabulous resource that we've used throughout COVID. It, it's shown us how differently the first wave was to the second wave. It showed how quickly our intensive care community learnt about COVID and, um, immediately sort of translated their learnings into improving practice and improving outcomes for our patients. We had much better outcomes from the second wave than we did from the first. And it's also meant that we've been able to leverage additional studies. So rather than me having to collect all of the um, data about the intensive care unit stay in addition to the long-term outcomes, we've been able to just make sure that patients who are enrolled in our study are enrolled in SPRINT-SARI and we can link with all of that hospital data and that's very important from our intensive care research community perspective, just because the burden of data collection during a pandemic has been overwhelming. Our research coordinators have been exceptional and amazing, but they have been completely overwhelmed. And it, it just means that if there's one lot of data that they're collecting and they don't need to do it again for another study, that we can just link it rather than having to burden them with additional data collection and, and different sources and, you know, another lot of data entry for the same data that really could have been used from elsewhere. So, you know, we're trying to minimise burden to our sites, minimise the amount of data that needs to be um, captured for these patients and also knowing that, you know, in Australia in particular, we just 
compared to the rest of the world, didn't have that many COVID patients. So we're really trying to maximise the use of the data that we have from the existing patients rather than, you know, trying to, you know, either not collect the data, not look at the data or or alternately, you know, be calling these patients 10 times because, you know, we've got 10 different studies that we want them involved in. Carol, what sort of outcomes will you be looking for as part of your work and how do you expect this to be different from what's already known internationally? Yeah, so we're at, so so I guess there's a couple of parts to that. The the data that we're looking for is similar to the data that we've used previously. Um, and Todd, I've spoken to you previously about the Predict study. So the you know we've linked uh, it, we've matched our data to the exact same data that we've got from Predict. So Predict was a study where we looked at the long term outcomes of survivors of mechanical ventilation. It, um, all they needed was to have been mechanically ventilated for 24 hours, and and we followed them up whether they survived or didn't survive. But in the survivors, we followed them up at six months and we looked at uh, we looked at how, um, the World Health Organization's disability assessment schedule. So that's um, a generic measure of disability. We looked at their health-related quality of life with the EQ5D. We looked at hospital anxiety and depression scale, so the HADS, which gives us anxiety and depression. We looked at the impact of event scale revised, which is a screening tool for PTSD. We've used the MOCA blind for cognitive function. Um, the HUDAS also has a question around return to work and we've added the um, activities of daily living into this one as well so that we can see where the patients are getting back to independent activities of daily living. And the lovely thing about having the, so we had over 800 patients in our PREDICT data set and now we've got over 100 patients um, who've been critically ill with COVID and we're going to be able to directly compare patients who were generally critically ill and we can even from that group of patients pull out patients who were critically ill with acute respiratory failure, so other types of pneumonia and viruses and, and ARDS, and compare them to patients who have COVID and see if there really are any differences in the, in the functional recovery of our patients with COVID compared to non-COVID acute respiratory um, failure. So I think that that's a really nice comparison and, and perhaps that's something different. I'm not sure that may or may not be different to what other people around the world are doing. But certainly the tools that we're using are from a core outcome set of patients with acute respiratory failure, which was developed by Dalnedem at Johns Hopkins in the US. Um, and we collaborate very strongly with, John, with um, Johns Hopkins and with Dale. And the, I think that these are the sorts of outcomes that lots of people around the world will be using. Again, I don't see that as a weakness. I actually see that as a strength because then we'll be able to compare the outcomes of our Australian survivors to other survivors around the world, remembering that our survivors have probably had a very different experience. It's not that it will have been any less stressful, and I can tell you a little bit about some of the results that we found in the first 66 patients. We haven't finished looking at all of the data, but we've, we've looked at 66 patients with COVID. Um, but essentially, you know, our system wasn't overwhelmed we didn't have, you know, we we had enough intensive care beds, although some of the units were very busy in Melbourne. We, you know, it wasn't that nobody could get an intensive care bed, which was the experience in the US and elsewhere. They were sometimes short of ventilators and it meant that people, you know, couldn't necessarily get the life support that they needed immediately or, or at all in some instances. So I do think that maybe the the um, functional recovery of our survivors might be different just because of the the different experience that we've had with COVID in Australia. Carol, you referred to some of that early data and some of the data that we know from overseas. What is that telling us at this point? Yeah, so I think that, um, as I said earlier, that we seem to have had um, uh, a length of stay which is, you know, slightly 
Well, pretty much the same, actually, as other patients with acute respiratory failure. So so at the age of our COVID patients is about 60 so far of the survivors that we've followed up. This is, I'm now just talking about the survivors. Of the survivors we've followed up, the age is very similar to other survivors of acute respiratory failure. Their severity of illness is less, and I think that that really shows that it's, when they come in, it does appear to be this sort of single organ failure to begin with. So, you know, with the severity of illness is just measured on that first day. But the duration of mechanical ventilation is shorter overall, which means some people have a long, long me- mechanical ventilation, but some have very short um, and some have none and they just get by with high-flow nasal therapy or non-invasive ventilation. The ICU length of stay, though, is about the same. So it's not that they're getting out of ICU any quicker. And the hospital mortality is lower compared to our other patients with just straight acute respiratory failure. Now, having said all of that, um, because I think the initial severity of illness is a bit lower, it means that what we're seeing so far, and again, just bear in mind that this is some preliminary data, but the, the level of disability, they seem to be much milder. So there's more patients at six months who report no disability or mild disability compared to moderate or severe disability with other forms of acute respiratory failure. They seem to be more independent in their activities of daily living at six months. Interestingly, their um, health-related quality of life is reported as the same across um, all types of respiratory failure. So the way they perceive their recovery, their their quality of life is similar. Um, There's much fewer of them that are unemployed. So we're looking at less than 10% unemployment at six months compared to it can be as high as nearly 50% in non-COVID acute respiratory failure from our previous cohorts. So I think that that's really interesting. And the disability-free survival is also lower. Um, In terms of cognitive function, I I think that we're actually seeing that cognitive function is uh, pretty much there's no difference that we're seeing at the moment. Anxiety, And again, you know, I'm about to look at the larger data set, so this is just some preliminary. Anxiety and depression is probably a little less than what we've seen with other causes of acute respiratory failure, but there is more post-traumatic stress. And I think that you'll agree that in a pandemic when there's been heightened anxiety and this concern about the contagiousness of the disease and the family not being able to visit the intensive care unit and then being you know not able to have loved ones around them this has been very distressing and and this has really caused a lot of I think post-traumatic stress over survivors and and the you know the just the situation of the pandemic and, and the way that we've had to manage it has meant that I think that we're going to see more and more PTSD in our survivors and I'm really proud of one of the things that we've added into our study is that we're adding a qualitative aspect. So um, this is led by Stuart Lane and uh, Christina Whitehead um, and Smeet Rice. So I just want to say a big thank you to those three who really, as soon as they heard that we were going to do a long-term outcome thing, they pivoted and said, why don't we add a qualitative aspect? And it's been really informative. I think some of the quotes that have come out of that have been really um you know, they've really set the scene for how these patients have survived. And I'll just read you a couple of them. Um, Because my doctor had called ahead that, yeah, hey, she's coming. And they're like, oh, are you that COVID one? And they're like, get out, get out, go to another door or something. So that was the kind of weird thing you felt because you were like a leper. Um, You know, so these survivors were really distressed, even just trying to seek help and knowing what to do. Um, Uh, Another quote that we had from one of our survivors was then within 30 minutes, the doctor says, you know, you you probably have COVID and you're going to die. 
And another one was my husband has still not returned to work. He's still suffering from PTSD. So he doesn't like it when the phone rings because they used to call him at night from the hospital to say, you know, she's probably going to die within an hour. So when he hears the phone ring, it kind of scares him. Yeah. Very, very powerful reminders that the little things often make a big difference in ICU, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, while these patients are recovering, the ones that we're following up, a lot of them are recovering well. There are some symptoms that hang around. So just when we looked at these first 60 or so patients, we found that about a third of them still had shortness of breath at six months. Um, and only about just over 10% of them still had loss of taste or smell or a persistent cough. Um, but nearly 20 of them were still saying that they were weak, that they had significant weakness, which I think you would agree is common with a lot of our ICU survivors, that persistent, um, you know, ICU-acquired weakness. Um, and as I say, some of the, the more unusual ones, but that came up more, you know, quite repeatedly enough so that we took note of it was this hair loss. Um, you know, so there, there are some spe specific COVID symptoms, I think, that are unusual to, to the other signs of critical illness and, and something that's going to be interesting when we look at the bigger data set. Carol, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Once again, it's always great to have you on and for sharing your uh, insights into this emerging area. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to hundreds of great podcast interviews, modules, journal reviews, quizzes, articles, and more by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslocommunity.com.